Oh yeah, this will be fun. <laughs> Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Hi, everybody. This is Mark Rabin. Welcome to episode three of Lean Whiskey. It's Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. And we're joined today actually by a guest host. Uh, Chris Burnham uh, is going to be um, chatting. He's, he's poured his whiskey. He's ready to go. How are you doing, Chris? I'm great, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate this. Yeah, so we're going to do this. We're going to have some different guest hosts. Um, Jamie Flinchbaugh is going to be back for episode four. But it was a good chance for, uh, for friends to uh, share some whiskey and have some good conversation. So, Chris, you know, some of the listeners might know you from your own podcast series that you did. They may have heard the great webinar that you did for Kinexus recently. But, you know, if people don't know you, well, go ahead and give them background. All right. So um, I guess uh, probably the easiest way to talk about it is um, I'm uh, Chris Burnham. I live in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, I have been doing uh, lean or continuous improvement work in one way, shape or form for, I guess, going on 16 or 17 years now. Uh, I started out uh, working in a manufacturing environment. And I'll rem- I remember the day that my mentor came to me and said, hey, I'm I'm sending you this course that LEI is putting on. You're, you're, you're going to like it. And I'm like, what is LEI? He goes, Oh, lean. (laughs) Um, and so, uh, one of those moments that changes your career. Uh, and, um, now I've, I mean, I've worked in various places. I've worked for, um, uh, various industries. I've worked in warehousing and distribution. I've worked in financial services, food and beverage. Um, the cool thing about what we do, uh, with continuous improvement is, everything relates back to a process. So um, it's highly transferable regardless of uh, the product set or the customers that you serve. Um, so I have a, I have a, a different start. Uh, I'm not the traditional. Yeah, I love this. Yeah. This I'm, not the tra- yeah. I'm not the traditional engineering student. Um, my degree is actually in criminal justice. Uh, and I, uh, I got my bachelor's at Western Carolina University uh, Pride of the Mountains in North Carolina. And, um, uh, you know, so while uh, how, how I came about the, choosing that um, major was uh, accounting students had tests on Saturday. Um, the biology majors, they all, um, at that point, they smelled like formaldehyde from being down in the labs <laughs> all the time. Yeah. And uh, my advisor hands me the graduate catalog and I, and, and I was uh, enamored by the, 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 Um, things that were in the catalog, such as criminal procedure, investigative science, um, uh, you know, uh, tactical police driving. I mean, all, all kinds of neat, <laughs> interesting things. But yeah. um, you know, it's ironic. I don't. I, I don't. People are like, "Well, how do you use that?" I'm like, "I use it every day." Uh, because in continuous improvement and lean, um, I have to go gather my own facts and not rely on the facts of others. Mm. Uh, I have Great to point. be comfortable having discussions with people from all different walks of life and different educational backgrounds, social backgrounds, religious backgrounds. Um, so you, ha- you know, cause lean is all about people. Uh, and if you can't work with people and relate to people, then it's very hard to be effective as a, uh, you know, as a proponent for this science that we get to practice every day. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, we, we joke around back and forth that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got the criminal justice background, uh, and I'm bringing it to lean every day. Um, well, <laughs> yeah. what was it? You said, uh, um, cop to coach. Is that? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a phrase. I, I, I mean, yeah. I learned that. I learned, I learned that from somebody. Um, I forget who I learned that from, but yeah, talking about, you know, kind of the tra- transition an organization makes of supervisors or leaders being a cop, you know, who's on patrol, looking for violations of standard work and, you know, writing, you know, uh, writing people up or, you know, writing a ticket or hauling them into court or uh, something um, as opposed to being a coach to figure out compliance nature, compliance nature, instead of, 
Uh, I mean, I don't know. Is that, is that a fair analogy? I mean, a police officer is not coming out looking for the root cause yeah, of why so. some crime is being committed, are they? Or Well, no, I, I think um, they don't go for root cause. They go for proximate cause. So it's, sure. um, hey, this was this person is the person that caused this crime or whatnot. But that's a, that's a good point. Um, it's interesting because if you think about um, – a lot of the major metropolitan areas with their, um, and, and actually some of the small town as well, um, there's more of a focus on community p- policing where mm-hmm. it's um, interacting with the public that you serve on a regular basis and understanding what's important to them and, and building relationships that in turn uh, allow you to become more effective in that manner. So um, yeah, of course there's the compliance issue that's out there. Clearly if you're, if you're doing 85 miles an hour in a 55 mile per hour zone, there's not a lot of time to talk about it. That's kind of, you know, um, yeah. uh, cut and drive. But I think there's other things where you can um, build relationships and influence um, mm-hmm. good decisions, especially in the part of youth that uh, goes really well with, um, you know, the criminal justice background. Yeah. I mean, you know, even in manufacturing, I mean, there, there's a time like if someone's not wearing their safety glasses or they've removed guarding on a machine, there, there is a time to step in and, um, if you will, police things. I mean, there are certain, certain times where you have to jump in and take action and look at the, the point of cause or at least try to have a you know, short-term countermeasure um, right in the moment, right? Well, I mean, um, there, when it comes to safety, health and wellness, um, uh, or something that's regulated by a, um, a governing body or a sanctioning body, um, you have to do it. There's, there's not a lot of choices. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't get to choose if you wash your hands, if you're, uh, if you're working in a healthcare environment, mm-hmm. you have to wash your hands, right? It helps cut down on the spread of infectious disease. So, um, you know, and it's this, I think of it the same way here. Um, yeah. a, a, anytime you're putting your life or the life of others in danger, it's, it's a no brainer. Just do it. Yeah. Well, it's funny though. I know we're going to talk about healthcare again later, but I mean, like, you know, I, I think in most circumstances, driving over the speed limit is a choice. Sometimes, unfortunately, with hand hygiene, there are some legitimate barriers where mm-hmm. hand sanitizer dispensers are empty or, you know, people are overburdened and kind of pressured into cutting corners, right? Yeah, I, I think so. But I mean, um, uh, are you going to wash your hand If you've been handling um, uh, vials in a lab um, and would you wash your hands before you ate and put food in your mouth? Probably the same way. So you need to think if, if you wouldn't put it in your body, you don't have a right to put it in someone else's. Right. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I get it. I mean, there's, yeah. um, uh, there's, there's cultural and social burdens that, um, that, uh, and it encourage people to cut corners. And that's probably just, if you, uh, think about it back like that in, in fairness, my dad, um, I hear a lot of these cause my dad was on a uh, chair of the infectious, um, and the, the, the committee, uh, that they had the infectious control committee that he, so, um, you know, I, I could, I could board you ad nauseum about stories about uh, people who don't want to wash their hands, but, uh, you know, um, uh, there's, uh, you have to much like anything else with, with lean and, and continuous improvement, any other management system, um, you have to set the environment up for good behavior. So if you want to change the if you want to change the behavior, you change the physical environment that they're working in. Yeah. Cool. So one thing you know, I'm going to always cover, you know, Jamie and I talked about this in episode one and when we have different guest hosts, just kind of reminiscing a bit, like I'm trying to even remember like how and when did we meet? I feel like I've known you for a long time. We've, we've shared whiskey um, and talked in yeah. person. Um, Yeah, and so I I've, I was racking my brain about this too. We we have known each other a long time. Um, I I I'm wondering if it was all the way back in in your LEI days. Um, it was because that would be way back. Um, but well, ten years ago. Uh, yeah. So, but um, I I, I think the mo- the most um recent one was uh, last year when we were in uh, at the Kinexus um you know Kinexicon, yeah. uh, and we were sharing whiskey together. And I think the the neat thing for you and I was um, the youthful uh, movement with uh, lean and continuous improvement and seeing a lot of young people there. Uh, and I, I think we reminisced that at one point we were the younger guys that were out there now. 
<laughs> and now, and now we're the, we're, we're ascending to the old guard. Right. So, yeah. um, uh, but uh, <laughs> welcome I, I, to middle age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, look, uh, I, but it's the same. I, I was at, um, uh, one of the lean frontiers, um, uh, one of the lean frontiers events that they put on a while back. And I, I find myself sitting at a table with, uh, Ori Fumi and Gene Cunningham, and they're just sharing, war stories with one another, uh, about the, the different things that, and I'm in awe. I mean, I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's cool to be, um, I, I think that's the neat thing about, um, what we do is that, uh, the, the stories, um, may have different characters, but they tend to have the same, mm-hmm. uh, plot, uh, that goes with it. But, uh, the thing I admire most is, uh, in our community, most, most everyone who's a teacher, uh, at one point has been a, really effective doer as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that, and I think, uh, that's, um, you know, in other, in other circles, people would joke those who can't do teach. And Mm -hmm. I would say in our circles, uh, with what we do with continuous improvement, the best teachers are the ones who have been baptized and been in the Mm -hmm. trenches and, and really, um, solve some of the interesting process and people oriented problems that lean and continuous improvement can present you. Yeah. And, uh, and then we, we've crossed paths or I was following your work. I'll, I'll make a plug again um, for the listeners. You know, Chris uh, had a, a really good podcast series called the Lean Leadership Podcast. And it's still, yep. you, it, it's, it, you, it's, you're on hiatus, but they're all still out there. For yeah. Um, uh, Stitcher, I, I still get emails from Stitcher every month saying, hey, look, you had uh, uh, 700 new downloads or 10. Uh, I think one month I actually had a thousand downloads and, um, I haven't put any new content out there and I'm not marketing it at all or anything, but it's, it's neat that, um, it's still out there. You were guest number one. Um, you know, I think, right. uh, what, right. yeah, what appealed to me was, um, listening to the work that you were doing and what Ron was doing, uh, with the Gimba Academy podcast. And, um, I think the neat thing about, um, podcasting is, uh, you know, we, you and I grew up in the era, the broadcast era where, yeah. um, there were three channels on TV and if uh, heaven forbid the president was speaking, he was on all of them. Um, but, uh, and now as, as technology has evolved, we've entered into the, I, instead of the broadcast era, the narrow cast era. So, um, there's, if you're interested in learning about something, there are people that are developing content that can add value to help you out and inform your decisions and make you better. And I think that, um, I, I still follow yours and here we are podcasting again, but, uh, um, yeah. you know, uh, your, your podcast is great. How many years have you been at this now? I started podcasting in 2006. Wow. I've been podcasting long enough where podcasting was trendy and then podcasting was dead and then podcasting became hot again. <laughs> yeah. Trendy again. Like you're, you're on the backside well, of the, of this evolution cycle. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the iPhone and the apps make it so much easier than when people would have to, more manually download an MP3 file and put it on a MP3 player. And, and, and the, I think the technology and the popularity um, of, of, of that, you know, that it's easier for people to listen and pick up where they've left off. All right. So we're going to do as we always do here on lean whiskey, even though it's more a podcast about lean than whiskey. Um, we're always going to ask this question. So you can go first, Chris, what are you drinking? Oh, wow. All right. So um, recently it was my birthday and one of my closest friends knows that I like Rise um, and uh, found me one that was a little interesting, a little different. So today I am actually, uh, I, I'm having the first glass with uh, the podcast, with you in the podcast uh, area audience. Um, this is Basil Hayden's Caribbean Reserve Rye. Um, and it is a... Uh, Kentucky straight rye blended with Canadian rye and finished with rum. Um, it's a, it's an 80 proof. Uh, it's got, it is incredibly enjoyable. Um, I've had a, okay. yeah, a few, few sips of retirement here. Um, it's got almost like a, a mol- the rum, the molasses mm-hmm. finish, but with that, that good rye, I don't know, burn, uh, it, 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 it blends well. Yeah. So there I've had, I like Basil Hayden. They have one that they call dark rye where they said, you know, finished with port. Um, it's not a port 
barrel. Like Angel's Envy, Rye gets a finishing in a, a rum cask. But mm-hmm. with, with, I think they literally added a little bit of port. And I'm guessing with this one, does it say on the bottle, they've, they've literally added some rum. Yeah, they, they've, they've added rum to it um, uh, a touch. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, it doesn't, but it doesn't taste like rum. And that's, yeah. um, so it, you're, so you're getting the, the subtle molasses notes and the sweetness that you would get from, uh, a rum, but it tastes like a whiskey. Uh, it's, yeah. um, it's, it's different. Uh, you know, so I get, I always get a little nervous with, uh, you know, Caribbean blends or um, uh, Balvenie is one of my favorite yes. Scotch whiskeys, and mm-hmm. they have a Caribbean cask. And I found that one was too sweet for me. Um, mm-hmm. It just it, it, it didn't. But this yeah. one, um, it's not. It's sweet enough. But you get the. Um, I think what I like, what I prefer about rye in general is kind of that. Um, I call it a spiciness that comes with a rye. You know, yeah. it's a. It's just a little bit different and. So you're getting that spiciness with the sweetness. It's, uh, this is, I'm, I'm grateful for this bottle for my birthday. It was, <laughs> well, uh, it was a great birthday. gift. That is a great gift. And, um, I, I'm, Thank you. I'm drinking, yeah, I'm drinking, uh, Michter's single barrel Kentucky straight rye. So we're both drinking, uh, Kentucky rye. This one is probably, I'm sure this is a more traditional rye and, you know, rye whiskey means it's at least 51% rye. So there's probably also corn and uh, a little bit of barley. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I like the spiciness of rye. There are some bourbons that are known as high rye bourbons where, you know, a bourbon is, you know, it's 51% corn. It could be for a bourbon could be 49% rye if they wanted. And, uh, you know, 51% corn, mm-hmm. 49% rye. So yeah, th- this is, uh, I like, I like the Michter's line and, um, Actually, I'm hoping to go visit them uh, next Saturday. Um, they, they have a new distillery and tasting room. My wife and I are going to be uh, in, in Louisville. They only had one spot on their tour. So uh, we've got my wife on a waiting list, and hopefully that'll come through because she likes Victor's uh, as well. And if it doesn't come through, we have a backup tour uh, lined up. All right. Now, how did how – did- your wife end up on the waiting list as opposed to you on the waiting list. Well, Did you sign up first? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I signed up first and so here's the thing. So like, well, I, you know, cause I was the one at the computer and I was putting in my credit card. And so I put it, you know, put in my name, but then I called them and in shame on me, I'm, I'm pleading with them to violate their standard work. <laughs> mm-hmm. I said, <laughs> I asked them, can you, um, is there any way you could add my wife is uh, one additional person? And they said, well, you know, our space is kind of limited and we have to limit the, and I, and then I felt, I felt a little bad for asking, but they did come up with the idea. Well, if we have a cancellation, we'll call you. So we've got a couple of days. To so that the, out. I'm guessing that uh, you're not the first person that's called and asked them to violate their standard work. So they probably had standard work for when that happened. So that I, I'm, I'm comfortable that they were still following a standard response. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, th- this will be my, you know, my second trip to bourbon country. Have, have you had a chance to do that? I, I haven't. Um, there's uh, the Tennessee, Tennessee whiskey trail. Um, and I've been to a few of uh, the distilleries associated with that. There's a great one here in Memphis called old Dominic's, which is actually downtown. Um, and they're making, uh, whiskey, Tennessee whiskey, and also they're making, uh, vodka and gin here. So it's, um, it, it's all starts out born the same way. It's just, what do you, what are the ingredients and where does it go? But, um, last year for, uh, in December, I had to go to, um, Cork, Ireland for work. And I had a chance to go to Middleton where all of the Jameson in the world is born. And that was, I, the Jameson distillery is, is impressive. It, it cool. um, yeah. So have, I definitely want to go to Kentucky. Um, uh, we, there's a, there's a person that's in, in, in our industry that, that works up there now and has his own. Yeah. Distilleries. D- David Meyer. Well, Jamie and I talked about David and his whiskeys uh, in episode two, and I'm going to go pop in uh, and see David um, because it's always good to see him. But then secondly, like I'm, I'm going to buy some more of his whiskey and 
bring it home in a Chuck suitcase because that's really the only way I have to buy it. So, you know, I, I guess bring it home in a Chuck or go straight to a FedEx Kinko's and put a whole bunch of padding around it and ship it that, but they're just going to put it on a plane anyway. Right. They, they would, well, no, they FedEx, UPS, they, they won't ship liquor. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. I get, well, they're protecting themselves from becoming uh, eight, like bootleg yeah. agents, I guess. Right. No. Yeah. I mean, it's not even bootlegging. I think, I mean, I think they claim safety. I don't, I, I it's company. I don't think it's necessarily, federal law, but I think it's more, I think it's just being cautious and saying no to that. Yeah. Well, I know people that go to, to wine country, um, get the wine suitcases that are designed specifically for wine. So maybe there's an opportunity here to, to sell the, you know, the, the Kentucky, the Kentucky satch, right. The Kentucky, the Kentucky suitcase here. Um, well, so yeah. I, I'll tell you, well, I've developed some standard work. Um, the, the idea is um, take an empty duffel bag and put it in your suitcase. It doesn't take up much room. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of a trip, you use some of your clothes to cushion bottles in your suitcase that you have to check. And then anything else that doesn't fit, you put in the duffel bag and you carry that on board. Mm-hmm. Not bad. I like it. So we're right. gonna, yeah, that's, yeah, we'll see. I'm going to try that the first time. First time here. So I guess um, in episode uh, six, uh, about that time, we'll hear about how how your uh, your whiskey (laughs) transporting method works, right? Be sure to take videos. That'd be a great blog post. Take some videos and pictures. You know, I have I've I've blogged and 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 done pictures. I'll I'll blog again, and I think I can get David on here to be a guest host. Mm -hmm. Time here on Lean Whiskey. So awesome. Yeah. All right. So. One other thing we always do here in Lean Whiskey, uh, we'll shift back to to Lean Talk or at least things related to Lean, um, talking about topics in the news. We've got two articles that we're going to talk about today. The first one I'm going to introduce, and uh, actually I first heard this on NPR, but uh, it's an article online you can read. The headline says, when surgeons are abrasive to coworkers, patients' health may suffer. And I'll put a link to this in uh, the show notes for the episode, but they were writing and talking about a journal article in uh, JAMA Surgery, the Journal of the American Medical Association. And just a couple of key quotes from the article. Uh, the researchers found patients of surgeons who behaved unprofessionally around colleagues tended to have more complications after surgery. Surgeons who model unprofessional behavior can undermine the performance of their teams, the authors write, potentially threatening patient safety. So they highlighted and looked at four specific types of unprofessional behavior. One, unclear or disrespectful communication. Two, poor or unsafe care. Three, lack of integrity. And four, failure to follow through on professional responsibilities. So they found a statistically significant effect. Um, They said patients were 12 to 14% more likely to experience complications 30 days after surgery if if their surgeon had some of those behaviors. This would include infections, pneumonia, stroke, um, kidney failure. So, you know, my my first thought, um, you know, reading and, and, you know, reading this and, you know, I was shocked when I first got into healthcare in 2005 hearing about, you know, I, I think it's a small percentage of surgeons behaving badly, behavior that's sometimes tolerated in an organization. I mean, like, you know, example, I can't think of any other workplace where people, yeah, you know, curse and throw things. Um, you know, I, I heard even recently somebody talking, you know, a little bit less dramatically about, you know, the, the quote unquote difficult surgeons and how, you know, those surgeons are sometimes barking at you. And, you know, I think it does, unfortunately, it seems like it creates a climate where people are afraid to speak up and, that's, that's, you know, I think circumstances then for, for errors to, to not be caught or somebody knows something and, and isn't respected or listened to. So, you know, Chris, I was going to ask you first off thoughts as an outsider to healthcare, but then um, I knew this and I forgot that, that your dad was a surgeon. You, you talked to him about this too, right? I did. So um, I, and when, when we were uh, discussing the articles earlier this week, I uh, sent my dad the article, my dad, um, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to be participating in this discussion. And this is one of the articles we're going to talk about. Do you have any feedback? And uh, dad, um, he, he made some 
Uh, pretty good insights. So this does exist. Uh, and he confirmed kind of what the article alluded to that it's a very small percentage of surgeons um, that uh, overall uh, that go there. And, um, you know, I asked him about causes and he goes, you don't have to worry about the cause of it. If somebody is, somebody's a jerk, they're a jerk, right? Um, it's, that wasn't quite the word he used, but I, I adjusted it for the podcast audience. But, um, you know, he made a great point. And, and the point that he made is if you're in a crisis environment in the operating room, it's absolutely critical that everyone feels comfortable, um, uh, you know, pointing out that there's a problem or, or, or calling it out and being over, like over communicating. And so um, dad, uh, talked about uh, the need for the surgeon. The, the he they're the uh, you know for lack of a better they're the custodian of the culture in that OR. Like they're they're the person that sets the tone, um, so to speak. And um, you know, Dad is look. Uh, one of the things that he talks about in his career is that uh, he always felt like, and this is probably why he teaches or taught too, is that. Um, in the most difficult situations, he was everybody to keep everybody calm, focused and uh, calm and focused on doing their jobs to help the patient. And so his concern was um, in an environment where people are um, barking or yelling or being disrespectful, that that was, uh, uh, I guess, uh, counterintuitive to you know what he had learned where you got to keep the, the OR um, as an open place of communication where people, when they see a problem, they talk about it. Um, yeah. you know, and, uh, and he didn't say this, but I, I would know that, you know, most learning hospitals, um, every, at least once a week, they have their M and M meetings where they're going through, um, the, you know, kind of reflection on what went wrong. Uh, they'll maybe call it morbidity and mortality, but those M and M meetings, um, that's the place where you bring data and you start talking about, um, uh, you know, cause. Um, and so, yeah, I asked my dad, did you ever see this in, in your, you know, how did you, if you had it, how'd you experience it? And he mentioned he, he had a resident at one time that um, was uh, a little bit of abrasive and um, it was a coaching opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, didn't do it in front of everyone else, but say, look, right. um, even if you're right, it still doesn't give you license to act like this or to talk like mm-hmm. this, you know? And um, what I appreciate in the article is it actually mentioned that, um, when there was awareness, uh, it, it, it had an influence or an impact on, uh, on, on the behavior. Um, yeah. in, interesting point though, uh, in my conversation with my dad, and I think you, you, you would probably agree with this as well, is that, um, this, uh, uh, people that act like this are in all kinds of industries. They're, they're mm-hmm. everywhere, right? It's not just in medicine. Um, and, uh, those people affect your outcomes too. I mean, uh, it can be, uh, you know, it, I've certainly incur- encountered it in previous work environments that I've worked in. Um, and, um, it can have that chilling effect for talking about problems. I mean, literally I've, I remember, uh, one leader, um, uh, when I went into their office and we were discussing a problem that, um, uh, that he had tasked me to, to, to work on. Uh, and to help them solve. And I'm, I'm walking through the thought process with the root cause analysis and we're at, and he, he literally looked at me and said, Chris, I, I don't care. I, you know, I, I, I don't care. I, this is what needs to be the outcome. And at that point, it's like, you know, uh, how many more times am I going to go into him and have a deliberative process where we're sure. talking about how to solve a problem? I, so, I, 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 I got a similar reaction. I was, um, at a health system with most of the executive leadership team and like, you know, the VP of chief nursing officer, VP of patient safety, we're talking about um, some bad events and trying to understand causes. And they were going through, I think, in a discussion in a a way you and I would appreciate. And the CEO who had been at this health system a long time is now retired. Like you could see he was just visibly impatient and jumpy and, you know, squirming in a seat. And then at one point he just couldn't hold it in and he interrupted people and he blurted out and yelled, well, ah, well so, sometimes people are just going to be idiots. I'm like, well, like, oof, wow. Like, I don't know how you coach somebody out of that mindset. And, you know, like you, I think like your dad said, if somebody's really a jerk or a bleep or whatever, I don't know if you can coach it out of them. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard stories in different industries 
like, you know, software companies. If you've got some superstar salesperson who's just abusive and terrible to everybody in the company, sometimes leaders would say, well, yeah, it's not, we can't afford to get rid of them or they make excuses or they look the other way. And I think it seems like that some, that happens sometimes with surgeons where it's more complicated because they might not be an employee. They might be in a way a revenue generator. Mm-hmm creates this real kind of moral dilemma and business dilemma. Yeah. I, um, uh, when I think about uh, the superstar employees and, 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 and how they um, fit into it, um, I just think about the best leaders that I've been around or I've listened to, or that I've had the pleasure of working with and, and how they would, how they would handle it. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think the first thing is they set up the system to where, no one's allowed to, or that kind of behavior is not tolerated, right? It's um, culturally inappropriate, right? Mm-hmm. From the beginning. Um, and then I think the other thing is, is that um, uh, they, uh, with that, they would, they would support someone saying, Hey, that's not right. Um, kind of that um, call it carefrontation, right? Where it's you're you're confronting someone, but it's from a place of good for the benefit <laughs> of the team, sure. as opposed to, just, um, uh, you know, being out there. I, I, I always think about, um, uh, Rich Sheridan and Joy Inc. And his, mm-hmm. and his talks that he gives when he's talking about mm-hmm. leaders being the, the, the individuals that are responsible for, uh, culture and culture being a lot like air and it's not yeah. bad unless you, you're in it. Um, and then uh, a good leader is like an HVAC system that, that, pumps out the fear and pumps out the futility and filters out ambiguity and pumps back in safety and, um, and, and confidence and pride. And, uh, you know, I, I, um, I think rich the same way that like Toyota does he opens their doors up to say, Hey, come in and look what you're doing. And it's not the way that the machines are set up and it's not the way that the people are sitting. And it's not the meetings that they have or the, the visual management tools. Um, at the end of the day, the difference between them and the reason that they're so open about it is because they have better mm-hmm. behaviors, right? They have yeah, better. I, I'm sorry, better, I cut you off. Better behaviors, better. Yeah, better, better behaviors, and the the behaviors support all of the things that you see visibly. But the invisible thing is how people treat one another. Yeah, yeah, and I've I've had a chance to to visit. Um, Rich is somebody as you were saying earlier, is a doer and a teacher. You know, so his company, Menlo Innovations in Ann Arbor, um, I've had a chance to go and visit. And there, there are certainly artifacts or practices that you could copy from Menlo Innovations, sort of like someone could go to Toyota and copy a tool that works well there and then works badly in a different type of culture. Yeah. So uh, you got to have the got to have the behaviors that support it. Yeah. All right. Um, um, I'm, I'm, oh, go ahead. Well, I'm grateful that the the behaviors uh, apparently and the Basil Hayden's distillery are, are producing a good product. So I want, <laughs> want to give them a plug as I take a sip and say thank you to them for uh, this fine spirits that they're sharing. Yeah. So um, as you take a sip, I'd say one, one other point maybe on this article. I, I think it was interesting. Uh, your, your dad made a good point. If someone is just a, if you're just a jerk, you're going to be a jerk. And you know, I think, you know, sometimes I, I, I try to think, though, let's say if somebody is normally not a jerk and they have a, they have a bad day, they have a bad outburst where it's not expected, I, I think it's fair sometimes to step back and look at what are the causes of the frustration. Let's say it's Wednesday and the sur- you know, it's their second day of surgery that week, and this is the 10th time they've opened a surgical pack that has a dirty or missing instrument. And they're just at their wits end and the organization is not properly supporting them. I, I think there are, there are ways you, you might not eliminate all jerkish behavior, but I, I think I, I, I'm always curious if improving the system and eliminating those irritants would lead to better behavior in a better environment. I, I think so. Um, look, I mean, that's, um, uh, you know, everybody has, everybody has a bad day. We're humans. We're flawed. We're going to have moments where uh, we, we we don't act at our, our best. Um, but I think uh, what uh, the authors of this study were pointing out is that the people that were habitually like this on yeah. a regular basis are the ones that cause harm to patients. And I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, uh, uh, it's um, I, what I loved about their, their article is now, now they're assigning 
cause with measurements that back with data that Mac backs it up. And um, hopefully in the spirit of continuous improvement, uh, teachers and, uh, and, and learning our learning hospitals can take this data and go back and yeah. demonstrate why it's important that we act this in a certain way with, you know, standards of professionalism. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned evidence because like to me, a lot of this is just self-evident or principles based that we should have respect for people. We should have respectful interactions. It seems like a clear cause and effect that if you're not acting respectfully, bad things are going to happen. But in healthcare, people are going to say, well, show me the evidence. And like, okay, well, maybe we can, we can do that now. And I don't know if evidence alone um, all right, so we are going to introduce, I, I think this might be a recurring segment. Jamie and I are going to do this next time. Kind of a short segment called Lean Pet Peeves. Um, without, uh, I'm trying to remind myself here without going on and on about it. This might be thinking back to Seinfeld, the airing of the lean grievances. <laughs> it might be Lean Festivus. Um, <laughs> for who, the rest of us. Festive, lean Festivus for the rest of us. So my pet peeve today is... When, when we see lean in all caps, um, you see it's spelled out in all caps, usually without periods in, in, in between, which is uppercase L-E-A-N, which leads to me being asked all the time if lean is an acronym. Um, it, it's not. And I, I, don't know why, I don't know where and why people don't put Six Sigma in all caps. I, I don't know the origin of, of why sometimes people feel the need to put it in all caps. It's not important, which I guess that's why it's a pet peeve. So that's mine. Yeah. And there's, there's no need to yell and, 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 and typing. We hear you. We're, we're reading, right? Um, <laughs> was I yelling? I hope I wasn't. Yelling. No, no, but if you, if you emailed it in, in all caps, that's, I always think of whenever I see somebody typing in all caps uh, that they're, uh, that, that they're yelling. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I, I'm I, on that, on the all caps. Um, and you can edit this out if need be, but, um, you know, there's a story about the, the IT guy that, uh, gets an email from, uh, from somebody and it's in all caps and he opens it up and glances at it and just closes it back down and gets another one in all caps and says, oh, what's going on. So when he reads this, says, please help me. My caps lock is broken on my keyboard and I can't get it out of all caps. And, uh, <laughs> from that standpoint, so, uh, you know, it goes back to fixing the system, uh, you know, to encourage the behavior. But, um, I, I do think that you have, you do have an acronym related to this and that's one that I love and that's, uh-huh. that's lame. Can you, can, can you share what lame is? For, oh. for the team? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, about 10 years ago, I got tired of seeing articles where people were um, complaining about lean and what they were describing didn't really seem like lean, whether that's, you know, a company saying like, Oh, we're going to do office five S and you're not allowed to have, family photos on your desk anymore because family photos are not value added. And like, I know for a fact, Toyota allows engineers and people to have family photos on their desks. So, you know, uh, so I, so I coined this really awkward acronym lame, which either means lean as misguidedly executed, or it could also mean lean as mistakenly explained, which it's kind of judgmental on my part, and I apologize for that, but um, yeah. we'll try to be lean, not lame. I, I thought you were going to say lean, um, and this is tying into what you were going to say here as a pet peeve. I've, I've heard people say, oh, lean, that must stand for less employees are needed. Yeah, that, that, and that is, that is my pet peeve. Um, you know, or, or when you hear somebody say, oh, well, you need to lean this out. And then when you ask them questions on that, what they really mean is um, I, I need you to reduce headcount. And, um, you know, I look, any improvement project where you're trying to get uh, individuals to start thinking differently, if they see that one of their peers or one of their friends um, is let go as a result of the project work that they've done, um, you're not going to be able to, you know, work on any other projects with those people. And I, I, look, um, uh, one of the outcomes of, uh, of a successful project can be if, uh, better financial, uh, metrics, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there's nothing in any of what I've been taught that talks about, uh, reducing headcount. It's, uh, about understanding value from the perspective of the customer and, uh, and about, uh, and reducing waste and, um, and improving uh, delivery uh, at, at each step. And yeah. 
Um, you know, even uh, Toyota doesn't uh, talk about how many heads that they've, they've reduced because of using lean and they've been doing it for over a hundred years. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, look, uh, Lean is not a method to get rid of headcounts. Um, you know, it's uh, it's meant to uh, improve an organization's ability to deliver value. Yeah, and if organizations are hell bent on cutting heads, you don't need lean for that. You <laughs> there's a tradition, unfortunately, in healthcare where you know labor costs are often 60, 70 percent of the hospital's cost structure. Hospitals have been laying people off in attempt in an attempt to cut costs for decades. It has nothing to do with lean, lean often ends up being uh, a better alternative of a, of a different way of managing a different way of uh, a different way of improving. I think a more effective way of improving. Yeah. I think the best uh, lean teachers that I've had the opportunity to, to spend time with and to learn from uh, would tell you that it's not about solving problems. It's about creating better problem solvers. Yeah. And that's the really, I think at its essence, that's what, continuous improvement in lean means to me. So, which kind of goes into the next article, the article that that I wanted to share. And this was in industry week this week, and there'll be a link in the show notes page as well, but talking about lean and robots uh, being a dynamic duo or disruptive disaster. Uh, And, uh, and it gets into it. It says there's one group of folks who feels like any sort of automation or robotics is evil and violates the principles of lean. Um, and then there's the other end of the spectrum that says robots are going to make lean irrelevant going forward. Um, and that's Jim Morgan, uh, senior advisor, product process development at the Lean Enterprise Institute. Um, and he suggests it's, it's really about balance, that lean is very people-centric. It's about how can we make the environment better for the people who are doing the work. And robots and automation in general uh, are absolutely a way to do that. Um, and so... I, you know, I read the article and, and I thought to myself, at what point does something become a robot? What's the difference? Um, you know, if you think about the advent of the uh, conveyor line and, and the automated assembly line, um, before that, what do they do? Do they have people that were uh, literally um, dragging the parts or do they have people that were moving stuff around to that? I mean, you know, uh, you can go back and look at history. Um you know, so there's other advances that we've had that uh, make things more achievable for, for people. But before that, there were people that were literally responsible for moving those parts uh, or those products for, from that standpoint. Um, and then I started thinking about uh, what about a macro in Excel? Mm-hmm. All right. So if we if we record a macro in Excel uh, around data entry or about how to do something, um, is that a robot? Uh, at, w- at what point does um, uh, that work? And so um, what about ergonomic lift assist? And I yeah, think that it helps people. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, look, uh, and what about, uh, think about um, uh, other robots. You don't hear the, the explosive ordinance uh, personnel complaining about having a robot that they can then send up to dis- disarm a bomb. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think that um, robot techno- like robot is just another code word for technology. Yeah. And um, I think that uh, any technology should make um, life better. But what I appreciate in the article was uh, one, one, of the, one, of the, one of the people that was interviewed says, we don't want to take the humans out of the process. We don't want to take the thinking, right. the critical thinking and problem solving out of the process. Robots just help us um, give our employees a safer environment to work in. And they give us an opportunity to do to, to augment some of the things that our folks are already great at doing anyway. So yeah. um, I'm curious, Mark, what, what was your perspective? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I love the quote. There was a Toyota engineering, engineering manager who said the robots are intended for collaboration, not replacement. It says we never reduce the amount of team members, but we reduce the effort. And, and they may redeploy people. And, and Toyota's thankfully been in a growth mode. Um, for the most part. But, uh, you know, it's a, a good article. I, I'm just going to make a little jokey aside. My pet peeve is that Industry Week is now a monthly publication. And it has been for a while. And I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I think they still do the print monthly edition. It's, it's more. There's a lot, of, a lot of stuff on the internet. But, well, they send me an email every day. So I'm getting, yeah. you know, I could argue that it's Industry Daily, right? Yeah, so. Industry Day. But, you know, they, when I went to Toyota, 
you know, I've, I've visited plants in, in, in Texas and a couple of the plants in Japan. I, I, my tour notes from Japan last year, there, there was, I think, a sign that said, Toyota workers produce high-quality automobiles with the support of highly efficient robots and machines. And, and I compare that to General Motors in the 1980s when Roger Smith was the CEO. They were hell-bent on replacing people. And there was this long, contentious history with the union, I think a general, in my experience working there in the 90s, a general disrespect for the workers that was really unfortunate. But, you know, Tesla has gotten in trouble in recent years where Elon Musk really pushed hard to automate. He, he expressed a similar vision of what Roger Smith called the lights out factory. And, you know, Tesla had to backpedal. They over automated some things that were done more quickly and easily, uh, more easily by by people. Elon Musk, you know, tweeted famously, humans are underrated. And, you know, I think, you know, the, the Toyota approach is using robots when safety or quality are improved by using the robot. So, you know, there's some welding and some painting that's still done by humans because there's a, a flexibility or a, a knack that a robot can't be programmed, uh, can't be programmed to do. So I, I, I think that some of this just comes down to um, just to mindset. Do you value people and, and what they can bring um, to, to improvement? Robots, at least, I don't know, some, maybe Elon Musk is developing AI robots who can suggest Kaizen ideas, but we don't have that today. No, I, I and I think robot is just um, another word for tool or technology. So, um, if you look at the advent uh, of CNC machining uh, in the last uh, thirty years or so, um, you still have to have a machinist that programs. You still have to have a machinist that um, checks the part and understands uh, tolerances and and can and, and measurements and, and the system that goes with that. And I, I think that. Um, you know, before that, you, you, people were turning stuff on a lathe or on a mill. Um, and so CNC machining made the machinist better, but it didn't replace the machinist, right? Yeah. And, you know, there, there's another company mentioned in the article. And, and again, we'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, there's a company, AGCO, A-G-C-O. They make agricultural equipment. They are also a Kinexus customer. And they, they, they have a lot of uh, really good thoughts shared in the article about um, you know, here, here, here's one quick quote where it says, you know, they're implementing technology. It's not done simply for the sake of new technology. That, that's one of the 14 principles of, of the Toyota way. And, you know, is to use, uh, you know, tested, um, reliable technology that, that solves um, a, a problem. I mean, I, 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 I've got to tell a quick story, though. Um, one time, maybe 10 years ago, I was in a, a hospital pharmacy, and they were very proud of this robot that was inside a cage and it was surrounded by medications and little single dose packs and the robot would spin around and grab robot, uh, would grab medications and drop them into bins. And so they were showing me this and I asked uh, the, the question of, well, so how much labor did you save because of putting in this robot? And they, there was this really kind of sheepish, uh, look and realize, uh-oh, I've created an awkward moment. They said, well, actually, we had to add a contractor to do nothing but run the other machine that repackages the medications to put them into a format that the robot can grab. And, and I asked about, well, is this, does the, air bot, does the, 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 the robot reduce errors? And you know, like, you know, they, they were introducing new risks if the medication repackaging put the wrong pill into the correct pack. The robot doesn't know the difference, and 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 uh, you know it's just I'm like oh. I, it seems like sometimes people fall in love with technology, and there's not a real uh, good business case or or case for how it improves the process. You know, I, I've I've been um, I tinker and try with every kind of productivity experiment or tool out there, and um, I will tell you that I have gotten back to using a good old fashioned paper and pen planner with notes. Mm -hmm. And it made me infinitely more uh, effective. Um, I use uh, Michael Hyatt's full focus planner and Mm -hmm. it, uh, I I don't know, quite frankly, at this point, I don't know how I survived before I had that. But what I love is, is that um, I can just pull out 
pen and paper and and be able to be uh, effective. And I, I still take snapshots and pictures and email myself and make sure that my Outlook calendar is synced up with my planner. But um, my wife would tell you, if it's not in the planner, it doesn't exist uh, in Chris's professional life. And that's true. So, um, you know, technology, uh, like, like anything else, it's, um, if you use it for the right things and you apply it properly, then it can make you better. But, uh, if you apply it misguidingly, it can make you a lot worse. Well, and, and there's a difference, uh, just final thought on, on, on whiskey of, of touring different distilleries, uh, Jim Beam and, and other really high volume distillers. It makes sense for them to have automated bottling and automated packaging lines where, you know, the labels and the cork and everything is is done in a very automated way. Smaller producers still do a lot of this by hand. And, um, you know, so sometimes there's, there's a scale where at a smaller scale um, automation just isn't worth the investment or the other interesting scenario I've seen in uh, with wineries if uh, wineries in a region can't afford their own automated bottling equipment because they're not bottling every day, they don't need the equipment all the time, you've got trucks that drive around and, and, and you basically just lease capacity when you need it instead of ha- actually having to own uh, the assets. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I've, I've seen the same thing with um, breweries here in the Memphis area where um, they'll rent a canner to run a, run a batch of cans for mm-hmm. uh, some of the smaller breweries when they are starting out um, just to get their product in the, in the local stores. But um, it's easier for them to rent the canning equipment and can for uh, a period of time as opposed to setting up a bottling line. Yeah. So maybe we're, we're in agreement. If the question is, is automation good? The answer is yes and no. Here's yeah. Agreed. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what, what, one other quick segment uh, we'll do here before we, we wrap up uh, some of we do each episode in, in lean whiskey is, is take a listener question. And if you have a listener, if, if, well, if you are listening, you are a listener. Um, if you have a question, <laughs> you can email me. Mark at leanblog.org is probably the easiest way um, to get that question into the hopper. Um, so we had a question here from Mike Wiersma from uh, Whirlpool who asks, um, you know, could you discuss the value of having a network or a community of practice in and outside your organization? I mean, is, is this something you've been able to um, participate in, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a great question, Mike. Um, and um, I, whenever I, I think it's important to have um, both an internal and an external network uh, when you're trying to build a community of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, my, what brings me back to this is thinking about um, Stephen Johnson's book, Where Good Ideas Come From. And in that book, he talks about how all of us have a piece of a good idea inside of ourselves. And the way that ideas come to life is that we share those pieces with one another and um, they bounce up against the other pieces that other people have. And that, uh, over time, they they form and they change and they uh, develop. But um, you know, I think that uh, from an idea standpoint and sharing, it's important to have. But I also uh, the relationships that I have with my mentors uh, now um, have uh, really uh, helped me in my career. I now when I'm when I'm struggling with something or if if I have a challenge uh, that I that I'm not familiar with or that things aren't working the way that I want them to. Um, I pick up the phone or I drop a text or I'll get on Skype and um, I'll be able to talk it out with a mentor. And that that's what a community of practices is, is that uh, you have uh, people that are looking out for your best interests and the mm. common interests and you're able to uh, share ideas and get advice to, to make you better. Uh, Mark, I mean, I, yeah. I, how does that fit with, with, with your experiences? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I, I've seen, um, you know, organizations, large organizations try to, form communities of practice. I, I think, for example, um, I've had a chance to visit a couple of times where Cleveland Clinic has a, an internal community of practice where they bring together um, their, their continuous improvement professionals from different parts of the organization. And, you know, I think having mechanisms and, and even just the mindset that it's worth sharing internally is powerful. 
Um, I, I give credit, you know, when people ask uh, how I even got into healthcare, it was because I was involved in a local community of practice across companies when I lived in Phoenix. And so back in 2004, I was working for Honeywell. We had this very informal group that would meet quarterly, people from Medtronic, um, Intel, a couple other companies. Nobody was competitors with each other. We would you know, go and do a site visit. And, and it was great having outside perspective on things. But one of those visits was um, two women who had left Motorola locally and were doing some Lean and Six Sigma work at a hospital in Scottsdale. So I, it's just that would have never occurred to me. Um, and, and that was really eye-opening. And, and that got the wheels turning to the point where um, about six months later, I was in a position where my wife and I were moving. I needed a new job. I got a call from someone at Johnson & Johnson to join their healthcare consulting group. And without that community of practice exposing me to different applications, I may have reacted to that phone call by saying like, oh, well, no, no, but I'm not a healthcare person. And, you know, so I really, um, I really am thankful that I had that network, both, you know, at the moment when I was trying to help improve things at Honeywell, but then um, for the new career direction that it ended up opening up. And now within healthcare, one other community of practice I'll, I'll endorse is a group called the Society for Health Systems. That's uh, an, a national um, organization and community of practice. That's uh, a great thing to be a part of. So, uh, Chris, have, have you finished your Basil Hayden rye? I, I have, and I actually poured myself a second glass, but you know, yeah, absolutely. It's delicious. My, my, my second glass was uh, a little more than a splash because, you know, as we've said in the first episode, this isn't like the, uh, the podcast and the show drunk history. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's not drunk lean. It's, uh, having a, a collegial, uh, sip together in a good conversation. So I'm glad we, we were able to do this today, Chris. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, uh, in Dr. Johnson's books or Stephen Johnson's book, when we're talking about uh, where good ideas come from, he talked about the, the advent of, um, uh, uh, pubs and brew houses, uh, corresponding with, uh, the industrial revolution and, and where, you know, people were going together and, and sharing a drink commonly. And, and I think, I think the world needs to just to pause a minute and enjoy uh, some time with one another. If a spirit's involved, that's fine. But yeah. um, I, I think the cool thing about uh, this, you know, um, yeah, the cool thing about this is that having an opportunity to share ideas, uh, Mark, I appreciate you uh, giving me an excuse to drink uh, a little bit of whiskey in the afternoon and, and, and talk about what we do. And, and, and to clarify, it. to clarify for people, it's a Sunday. It's not a, it's not a weekday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is a Sunday. Um, and, uh, but I, I think that, uh, common experiences are the things that bond us and that, that, um, uh, that, that help us form stronger relationships. And, uh, as we've learned that whiskey is one of the things that, uh, we frequently talk about, we don't wait for a podcast episode to say, <laughs> Hey, I tried this. Right. So, um, I visited here. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, Mark, I, I appreciate what you're doing with the podcast Thanks. and I appreciate you inviting me to be a guest. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we could do it. This was, uh, this was great fun. And I think it's that, that collegiality that's important. Cause I was talking to somebody who, uh, I think is going to be a potential guest host and, um, and she said, well, I, I don't drink whiskey. I don't really drink. And I'm like, well, we, we could do lean iced tea. That's fine. Um, it's really more about the, uh, the, the, the spirit of things, not the spirits if you will. Lean ice cream, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to avoid sweets, but <laughs> uh, I know, <laughs> but you mentioned earlier, Ron and Gemba Academy, Ron Pereira, uh, another podcaster and a good friend. I, I think I was guest number one on their podcast. This is, I'm going to put little plaques on the wall. Nobody's You've got a streak, right? I, <laughs> I do, but um, you know, Ron, I don't know if Ron's a whiskey drinker, but if we do lean beer or lean iced tea, uh, maybe we'll, we'll do, um, one with Ron, but, uh, for, for people listening again, if you want to find, um, all episodes, you can search lean whiskey on Apple podcasts, Google play, Stitcher, Spotify, different places. Um, you can also go to leanwhiskey.com. whether you spell whiskey with a K E Y or a K Y at the end, like the, uh, like the Scottish do, 
and, and the Japanese do. It's funny, it's variation in the spelling. Either way, go to leanwhiskey.com or you can go to leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey. I would like to uh, invite you to subscribe, uh, rate, and review the podcast um, if you like it. So again, our guest host today has been uh, Chris Burnham, and uh, I'm Mark Graven. We'll be back with Jamie Flinchball next time. Uh, but for now, Chris, thanks again. Uh, cheers. I guess we'll, we'll maybe have our final sip. And salute. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> thanks.